everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about the Parsha. Our episodes in the Book of Rishit focus on family and interpersonal dynamics. These conversations are candid, insightful, and respectful. We aim not to psychoanalyze the biblical figures, but to learn from them as we stumble through our own beautifully messy lives. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. Lastly, please leave a five-star rating so that others can find our episodes more easily. Parshat Miketz opens with Paro's twin dreams, which interestingly parallel Yosef's twin dreams. Thankfully, the chief cupbearer, the Saramashkim, remembers Yosef's dreams interpreting talents, and he is called from prison and makes his monumentally important impression on Paro, both by interpreting his dreams and offering unsolicited advice about how to prepare for the years of famine ahead. It is a life-changing moment that catapults Yosef's life into a new and blessed direction. Never again will he be derailed from his destiny for greatness. He even names his son Menashe, which is explained by some as he who causes to forget the suffering of my parents' home. Yosef announces that his life has turned a final corner. And yet in the following scene, due to the years of famine, he comes face to face with his brothers yet again. The past, it seems, is harder to bury than Yosef had really imagined. Yosef does not reveal himself to his brothers and speaks with them harshly. He offers them food in return for an imprisoned brother and a promise that they will return with Binyamin. He places food and money in their bags, unbeknownst to them. He acts with an enigmatic combination of kindness and cruelty. The brothers later return with Binyamin, desperate for more provisions. After inviting them in for a regal meal, replete with abundant food and filling their bags with provisions and money, Yosef sets up the final goblet test, framing Binyamin as a thief of his divination cup. The Parsha ends with the brothers in great distress at the prospect of Binyamin receiving the death penalty. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with a new guest, Catriella Friedman, who is the Director of Author and Illustrator Stewardship for PJ Library, the largest international distributor of Jewish children's books. She is the author of the Melton Curriculum, Foundations for Jewish Family Living. Catriella has taught and written for adult learners all over Israel and in America, and currently teaches a course on Chazal at Matan's Zichron Yaakov branch. Catriella, it is wonderful to finally sit and speak with you. Thank you so much, Yosefa. This is such a privilege. So today, Katriella, I want us to get deep in the quagmire of the interpersonal relationships between Yosef and his brothers. There are so many prisms through which we can look at this topic, whether against the backdrop of previous brotherly relationships in the book of Reshit, and particularly also against the backdrop of Yosef's perceived divine guidelines or vision for how life is supposed to develop. And I really think that there are so many directions we can go in with this topic. And I want you to sort of help us jump into that wherever it feels right for you today. I find it's always difficult with Sefer Breshit to read things with fresh eyes. And I'm sure you feel the same, especially because so much of our Jewish tradition and classical commentaries and Midrash tend to love to fill in the gaps and try to smooth over the disparities. And it's hard to read 
a lot of these stories with fresh eyes and with an objective perspective. And I won't claim to have done that. But when I did sit down last week to take a look at Parshat Miketz without any Perushim, I was just struck at what you just raised before, how Yosef names Menashe, and I love the way you just said it, in a way announcing that he has arrived and that the birth of Menashe and Ephraim are a signal between before and after for Yosef, a signal between everything that has come, everything that he has suffered, everything that he had to get through over all those years. You know, we're told that he's 30. So it's been a long time of of trying to figure out what his role is and, and what his place was and what his place will be. Um, and that sense that he, you know, I don't think I'd ever really noticed before how when he names Menashe, he's basically saying, And it's translated here as, uh, God has made me forget Nashani, my hardship and my parental home. And I'd never quite recognized before the sense of pain, we are never really told before the sense of pain. We assume it must have been there. But here, Yosef is really admitting to the sense of loss and betrayal that he must have felt, not only from his brothers and everything that happened to him, but time and time again, feeling this tremendous disappointment and tremendous sense that things did not work out smoothly and easily, even though he had been he had been set up for a sense of ambition and 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 what his role was going to be in the world. I think that the name of Ephraim is a beautiful compliment, which refers to his current abundance. And so while he looks back at his past with pain, and I agree with you, it fills in an emotional picture that we had no window into at the moment of the sale when he's literally an object there and he doesn't say or speak at all. Obviously, Midrash fills it in, but the Psukim don't. But the Ephraim really gives us the sense of what his present and future uh, holds in store for him. You know, I also was thinking regarding the birth of children, just looking at Yosef as an immigrant in a foreign culture. You know, when someone is an immigrant in a foreign culture, the birth of your children who are going to be those who, you know, speak the language natively and who look around them at that place as their natural habitat, that itself is always like a real, a real watershed moment for, for immigrants to, well, we're going to come in with whatever baggage we have or, or whatever, you know, limps we still have left from being those that are always going to be somewhat on the outside. But when you have children in a new environment, as an immigrant, I always feel like it's sort of this, it's this mevaser tov, it's this ability to say, I could, I can move forward because these children steward that move forward for me. I like that a lot, and I think it's really interesting then in that context that Paro gives Yosef the name Tzafnat Paneach, and obviously a play on the Paneach part of things and the Tzafun part of things, but it's a sign of, of full assimilation or a step towards assimilation into a new society. In fact, the transition that Yosef takes when he's pulled from the boar, when he's pulled from the pit that is also announcing the conclusion of a period, right? He was put into the board. He was put into the pit by his brothers. And then he's taken it, it passively again, like the brothers throw him in and then Paro pulls him out. 
And so the parallel between the, the two pits uh, is very significant. Another announcing, I love that word in this context, another announcing that this is perceived as the end of, as the culmination of this period. But the first thing that happens is that he's washed, which we can imagine would happen. He, he gets a change of clothes, which happens time and time again with Yosef as he takes on new roles. But here we sort of see a culmination of those clothes. Um, the coat was wrested from him by the brothers and then, and then dipped in the blood for, as a signal to Yaakov about what might have happened to Yosef. And here he gets regal clothes again to signify his new role and an ultimate role. And those symbols are not lost on him, but they're also a bridge towards that assimilation that you're talking about as the new immigrant. And so I like that point a lot. And the other thing is that they shave him. So the classical commentaries, a lot of them talk about how that was a, a custom in Egypt, a certain type of uh, hairstyle. In other words, the commentaries are noticing that point in parallel to what you just raised in terms of another step towards getting absorbed into this culture. So he gets new clothes to signify his role. He gets shaved as a way of looking like everybody else. And then he gets this name given to him, bestowed to him by Paro. And I really want to think about how Paro becomes a sort of father figure to Yosef. So in terms of just the disappointments in the past, um, you know, he had these dreams. And even though he was clearly his father's favorite, uh, his father and the brothers scoff at the dream. The father, you know, says, I'm going to keep this inside because this is like a red flag for me. And clearly he dislikes that Yosef has brought up these dreams. And Yosef has had a lot of time to think. And Robert Alter points to this and, and some other academics. What he must think afterwards about the fact that his father sent him to Shechem to find his brothers, a place of violence, uh, a place where Shimon and Levi have caused great havoc. And yet his father sends him there. And all those years in prison, he must have thought to himself, why did dad do that? Why would dad have sent me to such a dangerous place? Then, of course, of course, his mother died when he was young. He had all the things that happened with Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. And then waiting for the Sarhamashkim, waiting for the Sarhamashkim to keep his promise that he will present him to Paro. So time and time again, there's disappointment. But most of that disappointment, I think, if I were Yosef, would be centered on, where's my father? How come my father, of course, Yosef does not know that Yaakov was lied to by the brothers. We know that because we're the reader. We know the story very well. We're a kind of all-seeing uh, reader, uh, and we have an all-seeing narrator. But Yosef has no idea that Yaakov thinks he's dead and has been mourning him this whole time. He's wondering to himself, why hasn't my father, why, of course, why haven't my brothers, but my brothers already betrayed me, but why has my father betrayed me? Why has my father not come to find me and to save me? And then all of a sudden, this, this well-regarded king and ruler pulls him out, um, makes him fresh, helps him assimilate into society, gives him the keys to the palace gives him the throne, um, gives him a new name, uh, gives him success. All of his sense of ambition is met. He has a wife. 
he gives him a wife, he t- which of course in, 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 the Near e- in the ancient Near East, we see it time and time again in Breshit, the act of finding your son a wife and finding him a bride is the father's obligation. And here Paro does it. And here he has his children, like you said, he's building his roots in this new land. But I would like to counter for a second one thought on that, which is that even though Yosef has had these dreams and these aspirations for, you know, serious ambition in terms of what his role will be in the world, he, his dreams have not yet come true, so to speak. They have for him. In other words, he, you definitely have a sense here that he is satisfied. He has come to a point where I am happy with my life. Um, I'm happy with everything that has happened. And finally, I have Menasha and Ephraim. Menasha, I'm able to, you know, through his name, I'm able to forget the past. And Shadal talks about that. And so does um, the Nitziv, that that he's able to forget the past. He's thanking God for helping him forget the past and forget his father's home. So he can set the stage for whatever else may be happening. Because the dreams specifically were about him and his role vis-a-vis his parents and his brothers. And that hasn't happened yet. So I don't think that he necessarily knows that it hasn't happened yet. I think that he's put those dreams aside to a certain extent, but he's thankful for the forgetfulness, the ability to move on from what he perceives as betrayal and disappointment. You know, there are a few points that came up for me when you were giving that, I think, really beautiful perspective on what's happening so far and like the moment in time that we're meeting Yosef. I think, first of all, just to draw out two points that you mentioned, but I want to make sure are clear to everyone who's listening. The name Safnat Paneach that Paro gives Yosef, which you hinted to, means one who literally can see what is hidden. Okay, so we know that in the case of Paro, he's referring to the fact that here's the man who, unlike all of the dream interpreters, was able to actually understand what was going on in my dreams. But on the other hand, of course, it leans into what Yosef really has believed about himself all these years, which was that he has insight that others don't have. And the irony or the significance, right? You're pointing to Paro basically replacing his father, Yaakov. He's doing all the things for Yosef in his life that he would have wanted his father to do. And we'll come back to that point about what he knew or didn't know. And and we'll, we'll circle back to that. But what's also an important point here that I think from a psychological perspective for all of us as, as regular people listening to the, to this description is that very often One of the tragedies is that we often feel like people outside of our home actually have more accurate insight into who we are than what our families can see from their perspective and the insight. Sometimes being on the inside is actually blinds our family members because they know the background. So it's hard for them to buy that new version of somebody. What do you mean? He's not a diviner. He's, he's a boy who has dreams. He's, he's not, he's not that special, right? Meaning sometimes because our family has, has seen us from when we're small, they've seen sort of the evolution happen in slow motion it's very hard for them to recognize that. And then Paro comes, like so many of us know in our life, somebody on the outside, our camp counselor, our teacher, our professor, our employer, comes and says, oh, look, this is a talent you have. And you're like, yes, that is a talent. I've had that always, right? But there's been nobody in my clothes setting who's been able to identify it. And that to me is also like the triumph that that 
Yosef must have felt meeting Paro. I mean, not only is he the father figure, he's a father figure who can provide something that most parents can't accurately do because they're simply too close to their children. And sometimes they can. Sometimes there's a parent who is a little bit more distant, but because of their distance, they're able to really a little bit typecast, but accurately typecast their children, not in like the pejorative hurtful kind of way. But in this case, Paro is the outsider who sees Yosef for what he is, and he must feel really, really, really validated and redeemed by this new this newfound role. And I, I see that you have a response, and I want to hear it so much, but I want to just add one more point, because after this, yeah. I'll just forget about it, which is the point about us being readers. Mm. I also just want to flesh out that point for one second, because I want everyone to notice that there is a concept called dramatic irony, which is when there is a gap between what the audience knows and what the players on the stage know, okay? In the case of Sefer Breshit, the greatest gap between those two audiences, meaning the people, the characters, and the reader, happens in the story of Yosef. We know what everybody thinks on each side, as opposed to other stories in Sefer Breshit where that wasn't the case so much. That was the case also with Yitzchak and uh, Rivka. We also knew what each of them was thinking, and they don't know what the other is thinking, but the greatest gap between those knowledges is, is in our story, and that's what makes reading this story very painful and also it makes you impatient because we we know what's happening we know that he sold and what he did and what he didn't know and so the gap is very great and so we wait and read all these chapters waiting for the visions on both sides to to come together we'll discuss that a little bit more in our last episode actually uh, on Sefer Breshit but that's like this tension that we hold as the readers that we know the whole time we know it's Yosef they don't know it's Yosef but we know right and so the whole time we have the keys when usually Tana actually likes to keep the the readers in suspense much more. Uh, in this case, we actually have more of the keys than we usually do. So I just wanted to throw that in so that all of us realize as we go through this partiote that our position as the reader has actually shifted a little bit in the Yosef stories. I love that point, Yosef, and I really want to come back to it also not to spend a lot of time, but I think it's a really good point. But going back to your first point, I think that's such a brilliant way of framing uh, what's going on between Yosef and Paro. Because if we think about it, Yaakov, why does he love Yosef so much? Really what it comes down to is he is the, he is the child of his most beloved. And, and so he, he treasures, he cherishes this child that came from that union that was so difficult to come by. And so he loves him because of who he came from. When Yosef tells his dreams... Yaakov scoffs with the rest of them and doesn't acknowledge the dream, says, you know, you should be quiet about this. And, and, and it's a shmore, you know, that, that Yaakov kept his counsel about it, meaning there was some thought in Yaakov's mind that this could become a problem. I need to watch this. I need to watch out for this. The way we look at our kids and we sometimes are a bit critical I'm not going to say anything now, but this is going to be a problem. This could be a problem. Whereas what's the first reaction Paro has to Yosef's interpretation? You are completely correct. There's no Navon. There's no one that has the depth of understanding as you. And he immediately, he immediately places him in this position to manage everything. So not only does, unlike Yaakov, not only does he acknowledge Yosef's talent, he recognizes it immediately and acts upon it immediately. And whereas, I don't know what Yosef must have been thinking as a young boy, but when he told these dreams, he 
might have expected some acknowledgement, you know, apparently his mother is there too, some acknowledgement to say, yes, these are incredible dreams, the way we don't know what Rachel's response is, but it says Yaakov is the one who takes umbrage. And in contrast, Paro is fully accepting of the dream. And not only that, is quick to act upon it and recognize Yosef's talents. What I also found striking was that when Yosef was young and he gave, you know, he told his brothers and his family about these amazing dreams that he had, there was no plan. He just told the dreams. He said, I've had these incredible dreams. I think they mean something. And he's faced with understandable anger and they scoff at him. When he interprets the dreams in jail, he doesn't give a plan either to the Sarhamashkim and to the baker. He just says, these are your dreams. This is the interpretation. With Paro, he either has learned his lesson about dream interpretation, mm. which is that if you do have an interpretation or you have some sort of insight and vision, you can't just leave people with that. You have to give them some direction as to what they're going to do with it, which actually reminds me of something very interesting. Uh, Geraldine Brooks has a book called The Secret Chord, which is about da David HaMelech. It's basically a fictionalized version of David HaMelech. And one of the interesting aspects of it is Natan, the prophet, is the most disliked person in the king's court. Nobody likes a prophet. That's how she characterizes it. Nobody likes someone with visions. Because sometimes those visions are great, but a lot of times, especially if we know Malachim, they're not so great. And it's usually something disparaging about you. But here Yosef does something amazing. He, he has an interpretation that's pretty dire, and yet he has a plan. He has a plan in place for how you can reverse the dire aspects and actually make Mitraim even more and Paro even more powerful than before. So I think that's an, another interesting That's a really interesting point. Aspect. I never thought about that. Meaning I think it's critical to look at the, as I said in the beginning of the episode, it's critical to look at the dreams as connected to each other and the different pairs and sets and, and what is his interpretive strategy in each of them. But I think that's an amazing point. I'll say also that Yosef is very gutsy. Um, I think it's the JPS commentary there who speaks about this. But he's not asked. You're arriving at the king's, you know, at, at Paro's, court and he offers him unsolicited advice it's a very risky moment for Yosef and I agree with you as you say that now I didn't think about it before that there was for sure calculation that went into that and it's beautiful to look at it against the backdrop of the previous dreams where he says well where did I go wrong there I just shared my ideas and then everyone just thought I was a lunatic right but here I'm sharing my ideas and giving you a plan and it gives sort of like an anchor to that interpretation I think that's an amazing point and that shows also the growth of Yosef throughout this process he's not just somebody with vision but he's somebody who can also be a practical planner which of course he then puts into play in the later chapters he becomes strategic and yeah. we see that um, in terms of if we want to go back to the conversation about Yosef's relationship with his brothers and how that has evolved, yes. like the fact that he becomes strategic in his interpretation. He realizes, like you just said early on, it's great to be a protege, right? You can bang out a lot of chords on the piano, but until you can actually make it into an art form, no one is really going to appreciate it. And he's able to provide a complete package to Paro. And then he does the same thing with his brothers. Let's get more into that. Let's go back to those brothers and, and think about their relationship and how it's sort of evolved or is still evolving. 
I mean, there's so many layers there, but of course, you know, the classical commentaries and modern commentators have made a meal out of the first thing that Yosef says. It says that Yosef Heker, he recognizes the brothers as soon as they come to Egypt. He recognizes them immediately. It uses the word nikar, which of course comes from, it means the opposite. It means he acted as a stranger, but yeah. another play on the same root. Vayitnaker, right. Vayitnaker lechav. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So it says vayitnaker, a, a, a play off of the shorish, off of the same root, uh, as recognition. So we've seen that use of the word recognition of, of, of lakir uh, over and over again in the Yaakov Yosef brothers story cycle. Of course, when the brothers first throw Yosef into the pit and then take his beloved cloak, dip it in blood and bring it to Yaakov, they don't say anything to Yaakov. They only signal with it. They say, please recognize, Hakerna, Mm -hmm. recognize this cloak. Whose is it? And they force Yaakov into a situation where he is forced to make assumptions and they don't fill in any of the details. They just signal to him uh, that this is what's happened. And of course, Yehuda and Tamar, Tamar says the same thing to Yehuda. And it's recognition here is signifying something so much deeper than saying, wow, so much time has passed, but I still recognize you. It's recognition of a situation. And so if we've left Yosef a few psukim before in this moment of peace, moment of comfort, moment of satisfaction and contentment, all of a sudden we throw his world into disarray because his brothers come in and it's Lahakir again. He recognizes them and quickly has to strategize, but it's a deep recognition because now he realizes, A, he's going to have to come to terms with what happened before with with their betrayal of him. B, he's going to have to figure out what happened with his father because that's unknown to him. That's one thing that he just does not know. He doesn't know if his father was part of this plan and, and decided not to not to find him or or is his father dead or does his father just not realize where he is or what the situation is. He doesn't know. So while he recognizes the brothers, he's filled with confusion and a multiple, a multitude of feelings about what this could mean. Uh, coming to terms with them, coming to terms with his father and, and what that situation is, and then figuring out, is there a way forward with these brothers? What What is the way forward? And then finally, an understanding that now his dreams are coming true. Now he has to contend with what his dreams actually meant. And all along strategizing this very complicated way of figuring out what their true intentions are. And I think one more thing about this, one of the interesting things is that the brothers don't recognize him. And it's clear in the text they don't recognize him. But at the same time, their first assumption so much is happening. You know, there's a famine. They, they, they had to obviously, the text doesn't tell us this now, but obviously Yaakov was not happy about them going down to Egypt and he keeps Benjamin back. They wanted to go as a group and they, they're really provincial. They're provincial people. They stay in Canaan. They don't go to the big city. They stay where the animals are. They stay where they're, 
their comfort zone is. And they're rural people. And here they forcing themselves to go to this new place. It's so different than anything that they've experienced. And all of a sudden, this guy, this Ish, they don't even recognize him in terms of how powerful he is. They know he's an important Ish. He's an important guy. He tells them that they have to go and bring Benyamin back. And their first assumption is that finally they're being punished for what they did to Yosef. And I was really intrigued with that. Why is that their first reaction? Their first reaction is, see, we did make a mistake. Reuven's reaction is, I told you not to do this. I told you we, 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 we shouldn't have sold him, but we shouldn't have allowed it to happen. Wait, so I want to hear what your thoughts are about that piece. But I just wanted to go back for a moment. And I'm stealing a little bit of a phrase that I love from Brene Brown. If listeners are not familiar with her, please check out all of her different TED Talks, podcasts, books. Um, But one of the things, the truths that, again, psychological truths that is reflected in this story so deeply is that we, if anything, maybe are like an onion. You can add new layers to your life, but the internal layers don't disappear ever. And there's something about Yosef and his putting on garb and he's wearing new clothing. But you you can, if you keep running away from your story, then your story will eventually chase you down. And that's really the feeling that I have in this moment, that you made a lot of change and it was successful and believable. And like, you're really, you're so much an Egyptian that your own people don't even recognize you anymore. That's how believable your new identity is. But at the same, at the same moment, a person can't really build new layers peacefully without some degree of reckoning with those initial foundational pieces of themselves. And that to me is one of the most fundamental truths, points, lessons that this story comes to teach us. And I'm not going to go into it now because maybe we'll talk about it in a later episode, but it, it follows Yosef into literally his last moments, meaning the reckoning starts in these in these stories, but it actually doesn't happen until the last chapter in Sefer Breshit. But this, this has to happen in order for his identity to really be organically in- integrated into his initial identity as the Canaanite, as the Israelite, as a son of Yaakov. And so that's that piece sort of like at this moment of time where you just feel like his his childhood story literally runs and catches up with him. And he's caught there, this new guy, right? With all of his his strengths recognized, but then still put back into the place of that of that bullied sibling who also likely made his own mistakes. Okay. But into that, that bullied sibling right there. And so that, that moment is always to me like really, really critical in understanding this very human piece about, about the fact that we can run from our past or from who we are, but if we don't actually make peace with it, then at some point it's going to come up in a way that's, that demands that we, that we meet it head on. I think that's a really very interesting way of looking at it. And I think that the Parshanim, Ramban, especially, they would frame that as he had to allow for the for the prophecy for the dreams to unfold and he may have fought yeah. against it and and he may have felt at the point where Manasseh and Ephraim are born that's it he's 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 done he's he's at the point he's at a status and a and a point of contentment that is satisfactory for him and yet Ramban says, no, he's got to keep going because he has to let those dreams unfold. Those dreams had significance. And so that would be kind of Ramban's way of tapping into what you're talking about, about someone's personal narrative. 
the dreams, the feelings, the experiences, they're inside us. And at some point, they're going to have to come out. They're going to have to unfold. They're going to have to, you're going to have to take it to its, there's never a conclusion because it's not a book, but you're going to have to take it to some sort of feeling that you've understood it and you've come to terms with it. One more small piece to add to that point, and it goes back to what you mentioned earlier, which is that what does Yosef envision that his father was thinking all this time? And I'm taking your cue on a conversation we had before that we started recording, that there's the famous machloket, the famous argument between Rav Meidat and Rav Yol Ben Nun. See there, there's great English uh, summaries online, by the way, but it's in the first edition of Megadim in Shiva Taratzion's magazine. And, and that's an important argument about, you know, what, what do we actually think happened? What does Yosef think that Yaakov actually thinks? But I just wanted to add one piece, because you really actually, before, without saying it, you brought forward Reviol Ben Nun's perspective, which I actually wholly agree with. We have to remember that Yosef does not realize that his father thinks he's dead, and therefore he doesn't reach out to him. But I just wanted to add one other piece that really dovetails that point, which is that we have to remember that in every generation of these families in Breshit, there has been a chosen child and a rejected child. And to me, it's very clear, whether he, whatever he thinks uh, Yaakov knows, that Yosef assumes that he has been the rejected child. He is the new Ishmael and he's the new Esav. Now, does that mean they didn't live good lives? They lived great lives, but they lived lives that were separate from Israelite culture. They flourished in a foreign culture that was not their own. And Yosef, maybe for a different conversation, does an unbelievable job of trying to actually preserve two traditions at the same time. And that's why he becomes uh, a real model for that later uh, in other books of Tanakh, specifically Megillat Esther and definitely as of Chazal. But Yosef thinks that he's been rejected. And then all of a sudden, this brings us right back to the Ramban that you mentioned, all of a sudden his brothers show up again. And he says, wait, I thought that chapter of my life ended. Meaning I was just supposed to be Esav, I'm going off to Harei Adom, I'm done. And then, and then it opens up again and he says, oh my goodness, so maybe I have to re-engage with that narrative. I have to re-engage with that part of myself and try and figure out maybe I am supposed to fit in to the web of, of Yaakov's family, even though I thought that I was already done with it. And so that also to me is like this crazy moment where not only does his past catch up with him, but his whole concept of how he understood the development of the previous generations and he realizes, well, maybe I'm not the one who's going to be rejected and then re-engages in a very complicated, somewhat cruel way, right? But re-engages, has to recontend with those dreams that he thought were, okay, I had to throw them out. Like they weren't going to come true in the way that I thought they were. And that is a beautiful uh, summary of, of, I also agree with you. I think you'll be Noon's uh, perspective on that makhluket is rings true to me in terms of reading the text is exactly like you said, not knowing why his father hasn't looked for him, he can only look at history and say, this has been my role. This, this is, I'm, I'm like you said, I'm the Esav, I'm the Ishmael, I'm the one in Mitzrayim. I'm the one sold to Yishmaelites. I'm the one who was sold to Yishmaelim. So there is the connection. It's right. a, it's oh a my natural, God, great point. I didn't think about yeah, that, Yeah, it's by a the natural, way. natural connection, right? <laughs> and then we see it. He names Menashe and Ephraim as a way of saying, those dreams were things of the past. This is where I'm at now. And I can finally forget the past. And the disarray that you discussed, the emotional disarray of seeing the brothers and not knowing what that means. Uh, and then finally with the, with the denouement with the brothers, 
And the brothers are increasingly confused about what's happening. But the denouement went, he couldn't keep it in any longer. Here was someone who kept a mask on from the moment he told his family those dreams. And he learned the hard way that he had to keep those things to himself. And he, he had to be strategic and he had to be controlled. He had to control his emotions. Here he completely loses it. And I think it fits very nicely on your take of Yoel Binun's perspective and, and understanding of this chapter is finally, he thought that it was a thing of the past. And finally, it's all coming together. And for someone who sees, someone who has vision, who recognizes things, and, and all of a sudden having to contend with, wow, this is where it was leading. This, this is, it's bringing me full circle. And knowing at this point, he's going to see his father again. And what is that going to be like? How will he come to terms with everything that he's been feeling and his assumptions about the betrayal or his assumptions that he was pushed out? It's all coming together in his acknowledgement that he has to contend with his father. He has to face his father again. But I want to take a step back to what you had said before about us, about the dramatic irony. Yosef, I'm so happy that you brought up the idea, the notion of our role as reader of the text and the dramatic irony implicit in the text and the, uh, especially in Parshat Miketz, where we have very unusually, we have characters repeating scenes over and over again, repeating dialogue over and over again. So we as the reader, not only do we see everything, but we also can, can note the discrepancies between the way the brothers tell the story to Yosef, between the way the brothers tell the story to Yaakov, how things change and how it indicates their own psychological growth and trying to come to terms with what has happened and what their role is and what initially happened and how they're coming to terms with not even knowing that this is Yosef, but they're coming to terms with their past and their transgressions um, and their relationship with Yaakov as well. But I want to take a step back and look at us as readers. And Rabbi Sachs refers to this a few times in his Breshi commentary, which is that as, as Jews reading this text over and over every single year, going through it and going through it, reading these stories, it, we come as close as possible to some sort of divine perspective. It's hindsight. It's not foresight, which is also another level of trying to understand Yosef's visions because he gets clues to the future, but really he only understands things uh, as a human can, which is, oh, now it's coming together. Now I get it. And again, that's hindsight. So we as readers have full hindsight. We have a divine, godly perspective, as much of a perspective as the narrator. And we're on the sidelines saying, no, don't go to Egypt. You know, just like we're saying to Moshe, don't hit the rock. You know, it, we're kind of the, the audience, you know, giving out clues during a Shakespeare play. Like, don't read, you know, don't go down that path. Um, and yet time and time again, we're forced to read it and we're forced to see the different elements that the different steps that are taken to set our destiny and how it affects us. And I think that it's, it's an important exercise for us to kind of recognize who we are as the reader, because we are also a character in the story. 
the text brings us into the story, the Torah brings us into the story. For historical reasons, that's very important because it feeds into our idea of how we came to be. How did we come to this point? Like the Haggadah says, we each have to see ourselves as though we left Egypt. So just like we see ourselves as leaving Egypt, we see ourselves in this story. We see ourselves as as it unfolds and how we eventually will become the inheritors of the ramifications of this story. Wow. I think that very often we we leave that part out because it's hard for us to see ourselves objectively as having a role, so to speak, in, in the way that these in the way that these stories play themselves out through the generations. You know, just even the echoes of modern interpretations of these stories, I think, have added on so many layers to their understanding that I really think weren't weren't there. They weren't as noticed or 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 noted in earlier generations. So I think that that's a, a really a really critical point and also to help us realize how we're impacted, how our thoughts about the stories are impacted by the fact that we have all this information, that we almost identify with the with the the speaker, right? With the narrator of, of all these stories. And maybe I'll add one piece since you mentioned us being kind of godlike as as those reading the story, which is that please notice everyone uh, that God is nearly absent throughout the Yosef narratives. There are many ways to look at this point. I'm, I'm not the first person to point this out. Uh, God shows up in a revelation to Yaakov before he goes down to Egypt, but he does not reveal himself to the brothers or to Yosef. And I think that among the many possible ideas that this reflects is the idea that when one is living in a an exile situation, that one is left to contend with a certain absence of God, and that if God is going to be present, then God has to be invoked. And Yosef does that in an unbelievable way by invoking God at all different junctures that are very unexpected, you know, crediting God with his dream interpreting, crediting God later when he reveals himself to the brothers that really, you know, this was God's plan. And that's a really important piece. And the last thing I'll mention in that regard is that there are those who suggest that the book of Breshit, well, of course, God will come, will make a big comeback, so to speak, in the book of Shemot, and he'll, he'll show up right there at the beginning and be very present, that there is a mimicking here of the way that God relinquishes control over humans in the world, meaning he was the main player, so to speak, in the creation of the world. But when it comes to, you know, the more that generations develop, the more that we have to take responsibility for the way that the world and our interpersonal relationships play out with each other. And so we just should notice that, that God sort of continually disappears in these points here. Katriel, this has been a real, real, real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on today. Likewise, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.